Welcome to the Functional Football Podcast, where we talk to leading football coaches from around the world about youth football development. Today's conversation is brought to you by functionalfootball.com.au and is designed to help you improve your coaching. We speak to the best coaches who share their insights and lessons they've learned about coaching youth football. Here's your Functional Football Podcast host, Luke Harris. Welcome back to episode 12 of the Functional Football Podcast. The past few weeks have been very busy and our last episode with Marco Sullivan has had some fantastic feedback. So if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, please do so on whichever podcast app you use so you don't miss out on any of our episodes. Also would appreciate any love, so if you could give the podcast a rating or review on those apps, that would be absolutely amazing. You can also find us on Twitter through the handle at FunctionalPod. So please connect and give us a follow or even a retweet of our episodes. For today's episode, I'm very excited to welcome Jess Ibram, who is a British professional soccer coach holding his A license with the English FA and his A license through the United States Soccer Federation. He has over 19 years experience as an elite youth developer and national coach and high-performance coach. His roles have taken him from working in his homeland in the UK to the United States, Mexico, New Zealand, and even the Cook Islands. He's been an academy coach for the Wellington Phoenix, uh, for the Australian A-League team, and has worked with the Houston Dynamo FC of the Major League Soccer, as well as working, working with Chelsea FC of the English Premier League. Jess, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Luke. I really appreciate the opportunity. And Jess, uh, as we heard in the intro, your coaching journey has taken you around the globe and really just illustrates how truly global the game of football is. Could you briefly explain to the listeners how and why you've travelled so far uh, to coach football? Yeah, I'll try and give a uh, short short version if I can. Um, It's a career that's taken me to excuse me, the United States, um, New Zealand, Mexico, uh, and just recently the Cook Islands. But um, I really got a bug in the year 2000. And like a lot of young players in England, you quickly realise you're not good enough to make it into the game. So you you look to uh, keep involved in the game as much as you can. So um, I was very fortunate to come across the opportunity to go out to the US coaching and I've worked, you know, like a lot of coaches, really, um, in the summer camps, uh, young players from under six all the way up to senior level. And I've done that for about five years. And then um, I went back to England and I furthered myself in terms of gaining the necessary coaching qualifications to coach, a, you know, a more reasonable level, which I was successful in doing. Spent sort of around about six, six years in the UK and then I got a bug again. And I really wanted to develop myself as a coach by going out abroad and experiencing different cultures and different football environments. So in 2011, I had the opportunity to go to New Zealand and then that kicked off a sort of a mini mini uh, career for me in New Zealand, um, traveled to quite a lot of different countries and then including Mexico, <clears throat> which I've just returned from. And then I just finished up 
um, just recently in the Cook Islands, and I'm now just returned to New Zealand. And the reason I really went out to have those experiences abroad is that it's just really there's there's lots of opportunities I feel more abroad than what you might get um, certainly for me within the UK because it's such a competitive industry to to crack into. What have you found some of the challenges you faced um, in that journey coaching in, in different countries in different cultures? Yeah I mean every country is obviously very different and I'd say that it's been challenging in a sense that you have to very much adapt to the way with which that country operates not just the culture but also the football environments and that's been the biggest challenge for me is having to adapt to different footballing environments and it's not saying that you know I'm a British coach or and I'm going to come over to this country and this is the way it's going to be here because this is the way it was in England it's, it's not even being like that it's just really you have to adapt to that country and some of the challenges I mean I can reel off any number of different stories I guess one of the most recent was when I was with the Cook Islands and we took the under 20 national team and we took them to an OFC FIFA tournament and we played New Zealand we played Tahiti and we played the Solomon Islands so we traveled with 14 players and we were the smallest squad in the in the tournament and of the 14 players one was a goalkeeper and one we found out two weeks before the tournament was just coming back from a serious ACL injury. So to be honest, we had probably 12 players, 12 to 13 players. So that was a real challenge because you're asking players that are not used to that level um, to adapt to the expectation of international football with such a small squad. So that that was just one one challenge for me, I guess, but there's been quite a few within each country I've gone into, yeah. And has that um, played a big role in your development as a coach? Oh, very much so. I mean, I've been very fortunate. I've learned a tremendous amount from each environment and culture that I've gone into and certainly from the people with, with which I've worked close to as well. And I'd say the biggest attribute for me that I've been fortunate to develop is just, just learning skills about myself um you know that I and my ability to adapt um you know my ability to be more flexible dependent upon the environment with which I'm working in so I guess I've learned quite a lot about myself which has been the been the biggest key for me and and something we'll touch on later coach education but I, I guess a coach education course wouldn't really prepare you for the, the situation you had there with a, a tournament international tournament with only 13 players available and only one goalkeeper. Yeah, no, definitely not. No, 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 um, coach education course can prepare you for that. That's, that's sort of, um, yeah, completely different experience. And yeah, it was, um, it was a real, real big challenge, but now I can look back and say, you know what? I was very happy that I went through that experience. Definitely. You mentioned um, some of your work you've you've done um, in New Zealand, um, and one of the roles you had there was at the Wellington Phoenix Academy, which is a, a professional yeah. club from New Zealand that plays in the Australian Professional League, the Hyundai League. Uh, can you tell yeah. us a bit about your role for the Wellington Phoenix? Yeah, so really it was the back end of um, 2013, gearing towards 2014, I was working at an academy in the South Island of New Zealand near Christchurch. 
And we were as an elite football academy. We worked very, very closely with Chelsea Football Club at the time. And what happened was, was um, Ernie Merrick, who's now at Newcastle Jets, um, he came to the Wellington Phoenix and he's very much a pro um, advocate for youth and developing youth players. And we were fortunate to direct two players to the Wellington Phoenix senior ranks who signed professional contracts. And Ernie um, really accelerated the opportunity for us to relocate the academy from Christchurch up to Wellington. And then my job, in a sense, certainly that first year, was to establish the academy and so it would fall under and aligned with the Wellington Phoenix. And so it became the Wellington Phoenix Football Academy. And they only had the academy operating and then the first team. So it was a real big uh, player pathway that wasn't in place. So as time went on, through the recruitment of players, we were able to um, develop the pool of players to such a degree that we had a reserve team operating within the National New Zealand National League. You know, it plays against the likes of Auckland City. Um, so that was something that was really born out of um, establishing the academy. And that was my job, really, to establish the academy and to make sure we were completely aligned with everything that, uh, that was required from the club and, and Ernie Merrick as well. Well, that's, uh, I guess, a great opportunity and also a great challenge in order to, to set up an academy. I guess you would have had experience um, with what you were doing uh, at first. Uh, what was the biggest goal, I guess, in setting up the academy? What was what was the first step you got, you felt was the priority? Um, for us, it was really gearing around the environment and the people, uh, i.e. the people that being not just the players but the staff as well. And we were very fortunate that um, a private school in Wellington, Scots College, they came to the party and wanted to align with us very, very quickly and for us the academic and footballing model was completely holistic and they both ran um, very much parallel next to each other so for us the academic approach was very very important and that was made aware to all the players as well if you was going to be selected for a place within the academy and then there would be you know a certain criteria to come into the academy it wouldn't just be built around the footballing aspect it would also be built around, um, you know, the criteria of what we had academically as well with Scots College. So for us, um, it was the environment where we would operate the academy from, which turned out to be year one was Scots College, and then it was the academics alongside it, and then everything else was developed from there. So it was essentially a full-time academy where the, the players uh, went to school and trained in that environment yeah so it was a yeah like, like a lot of elite football academies it was a six day a week um training program with games and other elements that went into the academy model and but it was the actual game model was geared around you know the wellington phoenix and the first team as well so there was good alignment but yeah it was a completely residential football academy and players would either stay at scots college or they would stay at local homestays probably around about 10 to 15 minutes away from um, the academy hub and where we operated from okay and uh, you spoke about Ernie Merrick who um, was the head coach and he had um, a strong belief in youth 
What were the conversations then you would have with Ernie in aligning uh, the Youth Academy with the first team? Would it be that you would be a part of the first team training to see what they're doing or was it um, more one-to-one conversation? Uh, Ernie was outstanding. Um, I was very fortunate to work alongside him for the, the amount of time I was with the club. Uh, it was completely open door. Um, there was no strong expectation from Ernie. He really, really wanted to see us accelerating the best players into the first team environment as quickly as possible. And we had examples of that within the first few months. We had um, academy players that were 15, nearly 16, training with the first team. He was very much open to that. So the players would come in, they'd train with the first team. We'd bring the academy players down and spend time watching the first team. We'd obviously go to every A-League fixture as well. And then on a personal level, Ernie would also invite me into um, post-game analysis sessions from A-League fixtures. Um, he would invite me into the training sessions as well. And it was just just a very, very much an open door, open conversations, regular conversations. And, you know, it was a great opportunity for me to be around someone who's such a really, really well-respected and experienced coach within the A-League. That academy has gone on to have some success, hasn't it, with, with players transferring to the first team? Yeah, definitely. There's been a number of players that have signed um, within the first team. When I was there, there was two players, um, James McGarry and Logan Rogerson, who signed three-year professional contracts. I think they're in Europe now. Um, but yeah, and there's been other other cases of other players from the academy that have accelerated their development, gone through the reserves, and now either training or they've signed for the first team as well. So, you know, it's obviously a model that's working really well. And and do you think that that conversation with the head coach um, was part of the reason for the success as as well as the environment, as well as uh, the the coaching staff as well? Most definitely. For me, um, and I've been fortunate to go into a lot of professional football clubs and not all professional football clubs are aligned like we were at the Wellington Phoenix. And for me, that's key and it's of paramount importance that you have a first team coach who is, you know, very much engaged with the whole club from the reserves down to the academy because it doesn't happen in every football club. You know, obviously it's very much result orientated at first team level, but I think it comes down to the individual. And Ernie was just great at that. He's a great people person. Let me give you an example. Whenever I was actively looking to bring a new player into the academy, I'd usually bring that player down to training with the parents as well. And Ernie was great. He'd, he'd, he'd come straight out of the training session. He'd talk to um, the player in question. He'd talk to the parents as well. And, you know, he didn't have to sell the concept of coming to the Wellington Phoenix. It was it was there, you know. We had complete engagement, and that was really why it was so successful at that time. Seems like a fantastic opportunity for the players to, as a young player, to, to have those conversations with the first-team coach. Obviously, it would have been um, encouraging to those players coming into that environment to, to see that pathway. Oh, definitely. And it's, I think, you know, New Zealand is very unique because obviously it's a small country in comparison to, you know, where you live in Australia. And, um, 
you know the population is a lot smaller and um you know we call it it's, it's like a village really everyone knows everybody and you know there's only one professional football club in New Zealand so players can really accelerate their development very very quickly so you know you you had players that were coming in from different areas of the country and you know they've gone from a local Colts football environment um to now very in a professional football environment and you know they're having regular conversations not just with Ernie but all the first team staff the first team players that we'd bring down to speak to the academy players as well so it was it was very very powerful yeah and I guess moving on to the next part then the the setup of the academy and and how it was aligned to the first team uh, when you were bringing uh, players into the academy what process was used to identify that talent was it was there a model and um, do you feel it was successful yeah I mean we we obviously had a our, our own um, holistic game academy model and we would align as much as what we could with the first team um, one example would be performance analysis so we would run our performance analysis program uh, as lined as possible with the first first team um, as well. So we had a model that already, already operated on a full-time basis, obviously. And then we had different ways with which we would um, select players to then deselect players. Um, so what I mean by that is we would have trial days, just ad hoc trial days throughout the course of the year. Because again, because New Zealand's so small, it was easy for players to fly into Wellington. It could be an hour, hour and 15 minutes away. And it was also an opportunity for us to engage with the local community in, and region as well and beyond. So that would be one way with which we would, um, in effect, talent ID players. Another way with which we would do it is we would operate weekly programs. So what would happen is a players would be either formally invited or um, they would be um, identified by myself or somebody local within the region or beyond. And we would bring players in for a full-time weekly program and they in effect would do what we'd done in the in the full-time program but condensed within a week so they would do the nutrition they do the full technical tactical football program performance analysis session physical testing everything that we've done with all the full-time academy players we would do it within a week condensed and then off of that then we would then potentially select players to come into the full-time program but obviously there was a set criteria of what we was looking for and also um you know the level of the players we wanted to bring into the academy because they had to add value but we were understanding as well is that you know the boys are trained full-time if you're training full-time in a full-time football environment six days a week um then you're going to be beyond you know the the, the local player who's training with his local Colts team and, and everything else two, three, four times a week. So we were as aware of that. So really we were looking for players that could come in but had the potential that we could maximise that potential to development to um, ultimately um, pushing their way towards the Wellington Phoenix first team. And, and from that experience, did you pick up uh, any good indicators of that potential for players? Was was determination or resilience were there any key key things that you saw constantly showing up in those plays you brought in i'd certainly say yeah you've you've touched on it there already in terms of determination i mean 
if we had a trial day, as an example, at the club, you know, we could get anything up to 80 players that would t- attend that trial day and we might only be selecting one player or two players. So within that within that group, the players were obviously very determined and always showed a real strong work ethic and commitment to coming on that day because they knew that potentially this could lead to them being invited into the academy on a full-time basis. So there was a real strong element of competition throughout all of those um you know, selection programs, if you like, that there was, you know, and then obviously coming into the full-time program, then that lifted the standard again. What ages were the players when they came in? So initially we had a group that we, um, uh, well, players that I specifically selected um, to come into the full-time program. And those ages predominantly were, just coming on to 12, really 11, 12, 13, in some cases, 14. Um, and so the, the age group was around 12, 13, 14. I know the club now have made some really, really good progress because they've um, developed, you know, into different age categories. Um, but at the time, we just had one one playing group, if you like. But each player, I guess, and wanted to stress this, was on an completely individual pathway. Obviously, the pathway we hope would be the Wellington Phoenix first team. The likelihood of, of that was, you know, very, very tough and quite small, really. So um, if it wasn't the Wellington Phoenix first team, it was a US college. If it wasn't US college, it was a, it was another professional football club in their own country, maybe, because we had players that came in internationally as well. So it wasn't just that one pathway. You provided opportunities for players to go in other other directions as well definitely it was always individually um geared around their own individual pathway and in an ideal world you know they were going to forge through go through the the reserves go into the first team environment and end up signing a professional contract but i mean we both know that that is very very difficult so you know there had to be other pathways in place um you know, which show, you know, they would be just just lost on the wayside, if you like. They were still gearing towards a pathway that was really geared around them, not just in terms of the footballing element, but also the academics as well, which was obviously something that we monitored um, very regular. And did you feel that um, players who maybe were, were, were getting to that? older age bracket, 18, 19, was there still a pathway for, for the older players? Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, I can give numerous examples of that. And, you know, players would, um, once they got got to that age, example being if they, were, if they weren't going to a US college, um, if that wasn't a pathway, but if they knew they weren't going to make it to Wellington Phoenix and, they, and the US was market in terms for them wasn't the right fit, then, you know, we would open up uh, relationships. We had a very good relationship with Team Wellington, uh, who have just, I think, have just, yeah, they've just qualified for the World Club Championships at the end of this year. So that was a National League club, played in the same league as Auckland City. And so we would open up a pathway for those players to, um, you know, go towards a club like that. So again, you retain the players, or sorry, the game retains the players. They might be playing more on an amateur level, but they're still actively involved in the game and it's built around um, their own individual pathway. So uh, I guess um, you probably didn't have the same issues that a, a lot of 
the clubs in the UK are currently uh, coming up against with – there's been lots of talk after the, the documentary, which has slipped my mind. I saw that, yeah. I know the one exactly what you mean. I found it really interesting, yeah. And I guess to take a step back then, in coaching those youth players at uh, Wellington Phoenix, what would you consider the most important um, aspect to consider for for a youth coach to focus on? Um, For me, it's really making sure the environment is right. And it was difficult for us um, because in the sense of how small New Zealand is and we had an elite playing group within an amateur region. And so it was very, and I'm just talking from my experience, I guess, um, it, it, it was tough to, um, you know, recreate that, that level of competition when we would play regular fixtures. So for me, the training environment has to be right. And what I mean by that is, you know, that the, the session design with which you go into has to be geared around the players and maximising their potential every day within training. And w- our model was very different. So we didn't look upon it as we had a group of 16 to 18 players and we trained them like a squad and I was like a facilitator. It was always dictated around where that individual player was, um, down to the degree of being very detailed with the training sessions, the physical matchups that you'd have within the training sessions, if it was 1v1 or 2v2 or 3v2 and what have you. So it was all, you was always looking at opportunities that you could really accelerate their development. And I guess for me, that's key for um, youth coaches is, you know, making sure the environment is right with good people and, you know, looking to really make, sure that you're accelerating those players' development through the session that you designed. And, and that's an interesting uh, point you make, that individual um, learning because they're all on different pathways and obviously at different different levels. And I, I, as a teacher, we, we call that differentiation. So yep. uh, it's personalised to that student and where they are at the moment, where they need to go. And how they're going to get there? Yeah, and, and it's interesting that you, you've done that in that academy setting. Yeah, I, I it's, re- it's, yeah. Sorry. Continue. Yeah, I was just going to say yeah, and and again, that's just how we operate the academy of it. You know, that time not every academy operates like that. You know, and there'll be different layers of you know individual development that they go into that. But for me. I would almost feel like I'm doing that player a disservice if it was a squad training session. So first team would be different in the sense of, you know, they're they're training to compete, they're training to perform or trying to compete and trying to perform in the game as well. And so their training sessions would look different to obviously ours as well. So, you know, ours is always geared around the individual player. And like you say, it's differentiating um, each player's needs, I guess. And it would have been interesting, I guess, without that high-level competition um, for the, for those players, that elite level, because I, yeah. Rec- yeah. I recently saw a quote. It said, um, it is the player who defines the p- position and not the position that defines the player. Uh, I guess 
not having that competition, were the players um, it developed in certain positions or was it more a holistic approach to develop players whole game uh, to be able to play different positions? I think you've touched on it perfectly, Luke. Yeah, probably to both elements. So if I give you an example, when we would play within the academy, we would predominantly play teams that were two, three years older than our players. And the reason why we've done that is that they would be technically better, tactically more aware, physically, athletically, they'll be more advanced than our players. And these were the areas that we felt like we could really challenge the players. Even down to the formation, the shape of which we played within the academy. So we played um, like a one-three-four-three, and it would change at different points. But we we played uh, the free free at the back because we knew we wanted to get challenged. And at different points, um, if we took a group of academy players, and as time went on within the eighteen months, we developed the playing group to around about thirty-five players. So players would go into the reserves; they go into the first team. But if we took a number of players for the, an academy fixture, so if we were bringing a group of 2001, 2002, 2003, we would then probably play a local football talent centre 99 group or 99 stroke, some 98s as well. And that's really how we challenged the level of um, development, I guess, and also them becoming more competitive because they were playing against players that were just to a higher level because naturally they're older as well. But if we would have played groups around similar age, you know, you wouldn't have got any benefit out of that. Now, that was also aligned with, as you just mentioned, the holistic model is that within the training sense, the way with which, you know, I managed the training session and the session design, it was very geared around the individual and trying to accelerate their development as much as possible by making training as competitive as possible. Because again, we, we were a full-time training program. So the expectation was every time we go and play a game of football, whoever it was, we should, we should win the game. Now the result wasn't the, the, the biggest element with all of that, but the expectation was we're a full-time elite football academy and we're training six times a week and, you know, they have everything that's available to them. So, um, to be honest, the game was just uh, an extension of the competitiveness that was created within training to further enhance their development within the game by challenging them against teams that were just, um, yeah, like those elements I mentioned before. And that's really interesting because I guess in Australia, in an Australian context, parents um, always want their, their kids to play it at the next age group. And a lot of uh, clubs and coaches and technical directors, I think, are reluctant to play players in age groups higher. But if you look yeah. at some of the best players to come out of Australia, they have played in that age group higher, one, two, and even, as you said, three years higher. Uh, it's interesting that you've done that for the best players and did you feel that it, it was it was vital in that situation? Yeah, definitely. And certainly in New Zealand. I mean, New, you know, uh, New Zealand as as a um, as a country, I believe that football is the most participating sport. But 
in terms of elite level football, um, obviously it's different to Australia and it's it's different to Europe and and so you know you're always looking at angles of where you can really enhance a player's development. And if I give you an example, we had one player, James McGarry, who came through the academy, who's actually um, playing in the Eredivisie now for a Dutch club there, and he was 15, nearly 16, and his we were looking to accelerate his pathway as quickly as possible. He was the most athletic, physical specimen of academy player. So he'd already outgrown the, the academy environment. So then we would put him onto a pathway. He would be lo- playing locally senior football. Um, and I know a lot of this is taken for granted. You know, clubs do this anyway. But then we would then accelerate him by just drip feeding him into the first team training environment so he would go there once a week on a Wednesday morning so we were able to pull him out of school but obviously he had to make sure that his school grades were up to a good level before we you know we released him as such and Ernie was a big believer in that as well um because he's an academic and always had that background so then you could put them into a you know, a training environment where you're you're training with international footballers. So already you've accelerated their development in such a short, short time. But I guess really the key is, although the players in the academy were playing up age age brackets, you was managing that. And it goes back to your previous point in terms of the positions with which they played on the field. And, you know, in, in a sense, we had a 2003 playing against a 98 group then we would probably play that player higher up the pitch you know just so they could have um you know maybe less involvement in the game rather than playing you know central midfield or a number four where they're going to be continually challenged and um you know find it very very too difficult to the degree where it's overwhelming for the player and so, that, so they did get opportunities to play in, in various positions, even though in a, their age group, they might be a number 10. But if they're playing in, in high age groups and even training with the first team, it might be in, in a wing position to allow them to, to experience or be exposed to different experiences on the pitch. Yeah, definitely. I, I'm, I'm a big believer in that players, certainly as a, in the younger age brackets, you know, they predominantly play in lots of different positions, so they're multi-positional. Because if they have aspirations that are going to play at the highest level within the game, ideally as a professional footballer, then the, number one, they need to have all the attributes that they they can have in terms of being able to play play the game. If it's facing the game on the side of the side of the game, back to goal as a number nine, but also. At different points, they'll find themselves naturally in different positions, dependent upon the state of the game. And I guess football, obviously, is all built around opinions. And although we might have a number eight within the academy, and he predominantly plays a number eight, at different points, then I would flip him to the other side of the pitch um, so that then he could enhance his development on his uh, weaker side rather than he's just playing within one area of the pitch that he's most comfortable with. Because, again, if they went into the reserve team or if they went into the first team, the likelihood is they're going to play a different position anyway. So they need to have those attributes within their game that they're able to play, like you say, in lots of different positions. And, yeah, it it was an interesting 
quote that I saw and, and it really, for me, sparked a debate because even at silly young ages, parents still say, oh, my son plays this position. And you think, okay, so was that your choice? Was that the player's choice? The last coach's choice? <laughs> because it all, yeah. it all depends on the team, doesn't it? Because definitely, yeah. if you've got a, a player who is stronger in that position, in, in that team, well, then they might not be able to play that position. But in another team, yeah, they might be the strongest player in that position, so we're going to play it more. Completely agree, yep. And if you, if you look at, um, I guess, looking at the A-League, someone like the Wanderers under Tony Popovich seemed to buy a lot of number 10s that would find yep. themselves playing out on the wing because... Yep. The, the midfield positions were, were taken by, by different players. Yeah, yeah. No, I completely agree. If we then move on from, from your role at Willington Phoenix, and I think that was a great insight into developing an academy, um, how the first team coach can have a role in developing a successful academy and, and how even uh, that link with the school provided an academic um, focus can we then move to your role with the national team of um, of the Cook Islands and and your role as technical director about the context of the role and where the Cook Islands are and, and what the role entailed? Yeah, so it's um uh, that that I was brought in as a um, technical director and for the Cook Islands Football Association and. The president really brought me in to develop national national teams and national academies. And so I'd say really um, a lot of my work was built around the national academies, developing a um, national database for, for the players domestically, internationally as well. And then obviously coaches as well. Coach education was a real big remit for me. The Cook Islands is a very small country. <laughs> it's... Um, it's got 15 islands that is covering a geographical radius of the size of Western Europe, to give you an idea. Um, and the main island which I lived on, Rarotonga, that was probably around about 15,000 people in population uh, uh, with the circumference of the island about 32 kilometres. So very small, big ocean mass. Um, and some of the islands were unpopulated. So if you imagine you've gone from a professional football club and you've gone to a country where the sport is amateur. And so, yeah, my role was really, really to and develop national academies and align them with future OFC FIFA tournaments within the next sort of year, two years, three years, four years, five years. So yeah, that was a lot of my work. And uh, I guess that would have come with lots of challenges in terms of uh, getting players to the main island, uh, having suitable training facilities yeah i mean the training facilities as such were quite good but when it rained it would rain like (laughs) (laughs) and i know you're experiencing a bit of it yourself but um we would have a monsoon for anything up to four or five days and that would just flood the pitches i'd say one of the biggest challenges for me was well the the fortunate thing is i was able to watch games regularly because the island is so small so when you recruited the players or selected players, sorry, in, into the academy, and unlike you know uh, a normal professional football academy, 
you know, the players are there, you know, early, 30, 45 minutes before the session. If we had a training session at 4.30, the players would would roll in at 4.35, 4.40, sometimes 4.45. So you had to adapt to that. And it wasn't easy because you had to try and find a balance to still get what you wanted to get out of the training session, but not impact too much on their day-to-day lives because it was just very, very different. It's an amateur sport there. So that was a big challenge for me. And and was that more developing youth players in that role or um, older players as well? Yes. I mean, it was from boys under 12s all the way up to senior players under 20s. And my job, in a sense, was to prepare the players by implementing a academy training program, but running alongside that with the coach education courses to actively identify coaches that would then come and take those national teams or national um, academies on a weekly basis and then when they lead, led into uh, tournaments as well. So then I guess in developing those coaches for the national team, uh, did style of play uh, come into it and, and how would you transmit that if that was uh, one of the, the focus of, of your role? Yeah, I mean, it was dictated really with the players that we had available to us. And again, if if I give an example, like the under-20s campaign um, that we went through, you're pulling players from an amateur sport that probably play six months out of the year. They'll train once a week, twice a week at best. Uh, They might have 20, 30 games domestically. And then you're taking them into a, you know, an elite level international football tournament. So due to the level of development that the country had had previously and the level that the players were at, um, the playing style, I guess, was di- dictated off that. So we we looked at it very simply um, and I guess I really simplified my methods. So we, we couldn't go into an international tournament. We were playing New Zealand at under 20 level and play this expansive brand of football, 4-3-3, and, um, you know, we'd overload in wide areas and because the the players just didn't have the physical capacity to do that. So, you know, we looked at it very simply and, you know, our playing style, formation, shape, whatever you want to call it, was always dictated around that and it was just very simple. In possession, we do this, we revert to this, out of possession, you know, we do this and we just had some key principles that fell under it as well. But um, it wasn't easy. It wasn't, you know, to be honest, when you're playing New Zealand in our region is the powerhouse within Oceania. And and that's why it's been so good for Australia going into the Asia um, Federation because they're just playing a high level of competition. And it works the other way for New Zealand. They don't have enough competition, being honest, within this region. But for us... You know, you're, you're, you're coming up against New Zealand and these players have flown in from lots of different professional football clubs. So it's really make the game as competitive as possible, keep the scoreline as close as possible. And and I guess I, I, I can envision the challenge straight away, but was it an enjoyable challenge to see uh, the, the growth of, of the players and, and the nation as, as a footballing nation over your time there? Oh, definitely, yeah. I mean, it was a challenge in, like you're saying, a completely different way because, again, you come from a professional football environment 
and it, you know I don't take it for granted but there the expectation is different and you know um then you go into a completely different environment like that and you know we our our success was being was trying to be as competitive as we could at international level last year 2017 we went to Samoa with the under 16 national team and we qualified for the semi-finals um of the UFC World Cup qualifying tournament they'd never done that in their history so but that was six months of preparation leading up to it it was training four times a week and that was molding a group of players um so that you could be competitive as you could be when you went into that international tournament um so that was amazing to be honest and you know and and was that more about uh, a team uh, roles and responsibilities as opposed to to individualizing and differentiating uh sessions to to single players definitely yeah you've you've nailed it yeah it, it very much was and also the support people that it was able to bring in i was fortunate i was able to mentor a local coach um because my job as technical director i prepared the national teams but I wouldn't actively take the national team in competition. So I was able to mentor a local coach and she, she just grasped it and she was outstanding in the role. And as a result of that, through her continued education, she's, she's now flourishing beyond um, and will probably be involved in, you know, future national teams in the future as well. So, yeah, I mean, we, we ended up playing New Zealand in the semifinals and, New Zealand had previously beaten Tahiti 17-1. We lost 9-0 and we couldn't have been happier. (laughs) (laughs) So, Yeah, it does give you a bit of context then, doesn't it? Definitely, yeah. And yeah, we we won two games back-to-back, never happened before. So it was, yeah, believe me, it was a a big sense of achievement. So it was was a challenge in a different way, but yeah. Uh, For you, Jess, what is effective coach education? I guess for me is um, <clears throat> the I've I've been fortunate I've been through a lot of this myself but I, I'd say certainly um, the content of the course and the instructors on the course and if you ask any coach what do they remember of you know a, a coaching course that they've been through you know for me they're the two elements that are the strongest is you know it's the coaching framework it's the coaching content um, you know as well as the instructors on the course that, that make the content even more relevant um, so that you can come away from that experience that you felt that you've, you know, achieved quite a lot in terms of your own individual learning as well. And if you reflected on the badges you got uh, and then the work you did in the academies and, and with um, Oceana and the Cook Islands, did you use a lot of the experiences from that uh, I guess coaching course scenarios, or did you find the the, the on the job experiential learning was was much more important? I mean, yeah, for me, it's 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 different in a sense because the environment is different, and you know the. Um, <laughs> Well, although I was head of the academy at the Wellington Phoenix, I wore a lot of different hats, <laughs> and you know. But I would say that so you're involved in lots, lots of other different areas. But both both the licenses that I went through with the English FA and the, and the US Soccer as well, 
have, have really, really enhanced my own development and they've helped me within those environments as well um, because they were just great learning environments. And as a result of that, you know, I certainly structure things probably differently than what I would have done um, previously. So, um, yeah, very, very good experiences and I'd highly recommend it to any young coach, um, certainly at a younger age as possible to go through, you know, that coaching pathway. And given your um, varied experiences in coaching, do you feel that, I guess, your coaching philosophy and methodology has has changed over time? Because I feel like if I reflect on my coaching personally, I, I've i definitely broadened my, my mindset into how I coach and what I coach and when I coach um, as, as I've become more experienced. Yeah, I completely agree, Luke. Yeah, um, it's it's it's, de- it's where each environment I've gone into, and you know, again, I, I sound like an old record, but I keep going back to the environment because for me that dictates a lot of it. But that still doesn't mean you don't pull away from your your own individual beliefs, you know. And for me, that's the way with which I've gone about things wherever I've gone. But I'd say certainly me coaching abroad has, has definitely um, broadened my own coaching philosophy and methodologies. And because I've, I've learned things that probably I wouldn't have been exposed to if I was in a different environment, say the UK. So, but again, those different environments I've gone into, um, you know, although I might have adapted, I've still kept, you know, my key principles. And if I use an example, just recently I was in Mexico um, with a club there called Pachuca for five weeks and they have one set game model and they have two different systems of playing and they just stick to that and you know who's to say it's right and who's to say it's wrong I guess but it it works for them (laughs) you mentioned that um visit to Mexico did you pick up any um cultural uniqueness into football in Mexico I thought you was going to ask me that I pick up um, the language, <laughs> and that would be a no, no. Um, but very small amounts of uh, Spanish um, this guy carries. Um, yeah, I, I really for me, I had a good connection uh, to Mexico. I've been there a number of times. I worked with a player that I brought to the Phoenix, who's now back there, and in the national setup as well. And so I really wanted to go there, but more as an extended um, professional development trip. And the thing that really sets it apart for me is just the just the, the level of football culture is all geared around the game. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, you can turn the TV on. There's two, three professional games on every single night. Um, the the Liga MX League is shown live reruns. Same with the second division as well. Um, the women's game is um, shown live as well. And it's just a, just a level of interest and the enthusiasm for people to just, and the passion, I guess, the passion is the key word for me, that they just, they follow the game, they're avid followers of the game. And just the amount of football. I mean, I was there for five weeks. I mean, I probably, I probably watched anything up to 40 live games. Academy games, first team games, reserve games, national under seventeen games. It's, it's just the amount of football is just ever immersing all the time, and it's it's great to expose yourself to something like that. 
Yeah, well, I, I can imagine. I've, 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 uh, I've seen lo- lots of games around Europe, but never ventured, ventured that side of the world. So I'd be very interested, interested to see some of those games there. Did, did you find that, uh, there were different styles of coaches there in, in, in the club you visited? Yeah, good question, Luke. Yeah, I really did. And that was, I mean, um, <clears throat> I'd go in at uh, probably 7.45 in the morning. I watched one session from 8 till 10, another session 10 till, 10 till uh, 12, and then I'd come back to work with the juniors from 4 till 6. So I was covering every age group. And whenever I go into a professional football club, I look at the environment, I look at the people, I look at the players, um, you know, look at what resources they've got available. And every coach was different. So they had a Dutch coach who was working with the under-17s, who spoke fluent Spanish. It was incredible to see. Um, He'd been in Mexico a number of years. You had a coach from Chile working with the under-15s, sorry, under-16s. And then he had a, you know, a local Mexican coach who had been a player at the club and he was working with the under-15s. So you was able to see different coaches work and it was always geared around this one game model I, I mentioned to you before. And it was really insightful and interesting for me to see because, again, every coach is different. You know, I'm different to other coaches and such like. So it was a, it was a great experience for me to see these different coaches work. And, yeah, I was very, very fortunate. The club were very open to me just going wherever I wanted to go within the club. You said you're very fortunate to visit that club. If coaches were looking to further their careers, what advice would you give if they were, say, to take the leap to coach in another country, which you were fortunate enough to do? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a very very tough industry. Um, it's a very competitive industry, as you know, and. I'd say if you're a if you're a coach, not just any young coach or a coach who is looking to coach abroad, you've got to be willing to sacrifice a lot. You've got to be willing to go through a lot of adversity, and it might take you a number of years to get to the position whereby, you know, you you feel um, comfortable within the environment of wherever you're working. Um, I'd say that coaches for me really have to put themselves out there and. A lot of the opportunities I've got are not just through the initial research and networking with people and trying to develop relationships, um, but you've really, really got to just put yourself out there and say, you know what, I'm just going to commit to this and this is what I'm going to do. But just be just be wary that you, you're going to go through some real strong challenges. Um, a coach once said to me, he said, you, you know, within coaching, coaching is like playing in the sense of, you know, you have to look at coaching. If you have a two-year contract, a one-year contract, a three-year contract, you're always looking at the next contract. And that's sort of stuck with me quite closely because players, obviously, as they're coming towards the last year or two years, within their con- they're looking at the next contract or wherever it's going to be. You've got to look at it like that as a coach as well. So making sure that you have that pathway clear in yourself. But again, it will, it will change in an instant. If, if we would have been having this conversation Three years ago, and you know, I would have been saying I would have been working in the Cook Islands. I probably would have said, mm, "Really," but it just works like that. Football, you know. Something to finish on. What would be the best piece of advice uh, 
you have received as a coach that maybe you still refer back to today? Uh, you mentioned before about looking at your next contract. Has been has there been another piece of advice? Um, yeah, I mean, probably two of my mentors they they've given me two great pieces of advice. Um, when I was in England, I worked um, with a guy, Paul Hunt, for over about six years, and he gave me a real good, strong foundation within the game. And the best piece of advice he said to me is, you, you reap what you sow. So as long as you're willing to work hard, um, you know, you, you will get rewards. Obviously, you don't know when, but you will get them at some point. So it's really, you know, you have to commit everything to coaching. You know, it's a lifelong commitment to the game. And the best bit of advice I was given um, by another mentor I had who um, is a technical director of another country before I went to the Cook Islands, he said, look, Jess, best piece of advice I can give you is be visible. Um, because within that role as technical director of the country, you have to be visible to the people all the time. Because um, as a result of that, they will see you, they'll become comfortable with you, and then the trust will just become stronger because of it so yeah for me they they've been the best bits of advice but certainly you reap what you sow it's a, it's, a, it's a bit of a it's a it's a it's a classic but it stayed with me all right well jess we're, we've had a fantastic chat and I, i've really enjoyed the the detail and insight you've been able to give us in, in your wide-ranging roles you've had particularly in the academy environment I, I think it's been great to hear your insights and um thank you so much for your time yeah, no, I really appreciate the opportunity, Luke. Like I said to you before, I'm a, I'm an avid listener, and you know, it's just great the people, that, the different individuals that you have on, and you know, I, yeah, again, I've I've really enjoyed the opportunity. So again, thank you. If people wanted to um, touch base with you, are, are you on Twitter or any other social media networks? Yeah, I'm across the board. Um, I'm on Twitter, Coach Jess Ibrom. Uh, Instagram's the same. LinkedIn as well, so I use all those different platforms. And people are, I'm, you know, I'm more than happy for people to reach out um, and connect. Yeah, perfect. All right, thanks for your time, Jess. Thank you very much, Luke. I appreciate that, mate. This has been another episode of the Functional Football Podcast with Luke Harris. Get even more tips to improve your coaching and continue the conversation at functionalfootball.com.au or find us on Twitter and Facebook.